Welcome to Sound and Strain with Ryan Cano, and you already know, I am your host, Ryan Cano. This podcast delivers you the best sounds of music and the freshest strains of cannabis, and it comes to you nearly every week in DIY, high-def quality. Happy holidays, homies. What's new in your life? This episode's going to mark some new changes. This is the first episode for us to have an interview. That's right. It's finally happening. Today, we'll be talking with Austin, Texas music journalist and political strategist Greg Ackerman later on in the show. As mentioned last week, I picked some new theme music to kickstart this pod. So let's cue up the music from Velcro Wolf and let's fucking go. Hello world, and welcome to episode number 11 of Sound and Strain. Wow, can't believe it. We've hit the 11 episode mark. When this was an idea just percolating in my head to when I first spoke the idea out loud to actually buying gear and plotting the show to writing out a sequencing for an episode to now. Just wow, it's kind of amazing what you can do, uh, what you can do with your ideas. Uh, I love creating something out of thin air and having it become something that the real world can experience. Thank you all for joining me on this journey. I really appreciate you family, friends, and fans tuning in. Uh, seeing the stats every week definitely gets me pumped up, helps you know give me the motivation to push on to the next episode. And the best way to help the show garner more listeners is to tell a friend and then have them tell a friend to tune in. And if you can take a moment to go ahead and smash that follow or subscribe button on the streaming platform you are using right now, and that will help me too. It helps get this podcast recommended to other listeners who may like it. There's definitely a lot of listeners I'm getting from Pandora. So if you're listening from Pandora right now, thank you for tuning in and taking the chance on this show. Um, If you subscribe or you know, follow this show. You're not going to miss a single episode of this podcast, which, uh, you know, is seemingly posting on random days now and random weeks. Sorry about that. The holiday schedule has been kind of fucking me up on any sort of consistency. I missed last week, but I think it will be worth it. Uh, worth the wait for this week's episode. Uh, last week's episode, uh, or last, uh, last episode, episode 10 came out on a Monday. Episodes usually come out on Wednesdays or Thursdays, but you know, like I said, holidays have kind of really thrown me in disarray. So uh, I think this episode we're recording right now is, you know, it's a rainy uh, afternoon in Austin, but I'm going to have this thing hopefully post on Monday and it can accompany you on any of your holiday travels. Also, now that I have several episodes published, I now have a small sample size of audience numbers, which I think is going to allow me to start doing ads. Uh, I'm not sure 
I'd be into doing ads every episode, but we'll see. Uh, I'm only going to do ads for things that I think will provide value to you listeners out there or, you know, has provided real value for me in my real life every day. Uh, If it's a product I use every day, for sure, even better. But at the end of the day, for sure, no matter what ad uh, I do on here, you're not ever going to be marketed fucking garbage. Uh, I won't work with any bullshit ass company. So if you hear an ad on this pod from here on out, just know that there's value there for you, the listener, my number one fans out there. Other than that, not sure what changes in the show to expect, really. I just plan to kind of keep evolving the show as we go on. And, you know, we'll find a nice little zone here and I'll get a better idea of, you know, the content that you're liking and responding to. And we'll just kind of keep tinkering as we go on. Before we dive into the interview with Greg Ackerman here shortly, let's go ahead and get into Strain Talk. The strain of the week is... Can I get a drum roll? No? Oh, all right then. Okay, uh, strain of the week is Fruity Pebbles, a.k.a. FPOG, a.k.a. Fruity Pebbles OG. This wheat hybrid takes genetics from Green Ribbon, Granddaddy Purple, and Tahoe Alien to create a tropical berry flavor reminiscent of the cereal. The euphoric effects will keep you happy when you're stressed and help you catch some sleep when faced with insomnia. Grab this strain Take a drag and enjoy this interview with Greg Ackerman from The Cosmic Clash. Hey folks, I got a special guest I am so happy to introduce to you all. This is the first interview ever on Sound and Strain. We are welcoming my friend, music journalist, and marketing strategist Greg Ackerman. Greg, you can find his work on sites like The Cosmic Clash and Glide Magazine. And if you do a search on the internet, you can find so many musical writings that will give you great knowledge on Austin, Texas and beyond. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be the first guest on the show. Number one, man. Number one in my book. (laughs) (laughs) uh so let's um i gave a brief intro on you and kind of what you're up to but uh real quick let's tell the listeners of this podcast who greg ackerman is okay well uh i moved to austin 20 years ago uh my ex-wife is from texas and my current wife is from texas which is how i ended up uh here in austin and uh i started covering live music here a little over 10 years ago uh, and first wrote for uh, a new site and then various uh, music publications. Eventually, I became the editor of The Cosmic Clash, which is an Austin-based music blog and booking company. And uh, I've been doing that for almost two years. And here we are. (laughs) (laughs) That is definitely a quick overview. Um, You know, we met back in, I mean, when did we meet? Was it like 2009 or something like that? Yeah, somewhere around there. I remember we met at uh, uh, a boxing lesson uh, performance at the 2512 Lounge. Okay, yeah. I used to always be at the 2512 Lounge. So that yep, definitely yep. makes sense. And uh, I think Daniel Stenyard introduced me to Paul. And then Paul and I talked for a little bit, and he goes, you know what? You should really meet our manager. I think you guys are going to get along great. And he was right. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still friends all these years later just from like hanging out at a a place where we were all picking up free booze and watching free music. Oh man, those the do five one two lounge days and I sort of miss those. Um so um what kind of attracted you to really wanting to cover music from the journalist side of things? Um actually I had gotten into I so to back up a little bit, uh I wrote for uh local papers when I was in high school in Southern California. I grew up in Orange County and wrote for the Tustin News. Um and I had been doing some um live events work. Uh, which my family operated a company like that for 30 years. So I was still doing some of that contract work uh, back when the recession hit. And uh, that sort of dried up. And so I got back into uh, doing journalistic work. And at first I was covering sports for the local community papers. And then somebody told me about this new website, examiner.com, and that they were looking for writers in Austin. And I thought, well, if I'm going to, you know, really delve into this, I should do something I'm super passionate about. And that was music. And, uh, yeah, the rest just kind of took its own life. Uh, I was actually kind of testing out some content marketing theory. I was learning, uh, cause I was working with, a um, a marketing company, like a boutique email marketing company. And we, we started getting phone calls with clients asking us to set them up on Facebook and, LinkedIn and Twitter and this kind of thing. And so while I was learning all of those uh, social media for business platforms, um, I felt like I needed to figure out how to market that content across the platforms. And I thought that uh, writing for Examiner would be a good way to learn about that. And then it just sort of took its own life. And I started um, getting offers to write for other publications and eventually ended up where i'm at now that's that's pretty awesome hold on just a second here i got a, like a noisy ass cat in the background i'm not sure if you can hear <laughs> yeah sure this is, this is good podcasting um so one of the things that took me when i first met you is like you were kind of covering music from a different angle that people really weren't trying to cover you were kind of focusing on psychedelic music electronic music and uh hold on a second what are you doing here <laughs> All right, pets everywhere. Cat uh, wants in the show. Yeah, wants in the show every single time I do this. Um, but yeah, I let her roam around. Hopefully, she'll be quiet. Uh, so yeah, you covered things from a different perspective. You were working on like psychedelic music, and you're really hyper focused locally. Um, what kind of let you think that, or what gave you kind of like that uh, direction to sort of uh, take the lead and sort of explore Austin from? you know, really from the East 6th Street side of things, from, like, the garage side of things? Um, well, my actual title, title examiner.com, when I started out, was Austin Concerts Examiner. And they had local sites, like, all over the country. So I felt like my directive was to cover local music primarily. And then when I started delving into it, I realized, like, wow. I mean, I grew up in Southern California, which is the entertainment capital of the world. And, like, on a given night, there were way more good shows happening in Austin than there were in Los Angeles. And I felt like people needed to know that. Like, it's one thing to call Austin the live music capital of the world, and it's another thing to go out there and experience it and realize, like, on a Monday night, you could hop to four or five different venues and see uh, arguably better shows than you'd see in L.A. on a Friday night. 
Oh, I uh, I, I 100% agree, and I think you know what's I, I would always say that Austin has more talent per square inch than probably any city I've ever been in, including the entertainment stalwarts, you know, like L.A. or New York or Nashville. There's just yeah, Austin across all genres of sound really just it really has everything you can seek out as a music lover. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you can go on forever. Uh, literally, uh, what type of music you want to hear. And uh, when my wife Haley and I have friends come in from out of town and they haven't experienced live music in Austin, uh, we'll take them out to a variety of different places so they can kind of get a feel for what happens here. And they have a similar response um, that I did when I first started going to see live music was like, wow, this feels like a bottomless well. And it doesn't matter if we go run over to Continental Club and see the happy hour show or go over to Hotel Vegas for a midnight show. Like the level of talent is so high. It's kind of hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, and I really feel like the South in general, but definitely Austin is really this untapped resource for really lazy A&Rs and record label uh, honchos because there's so much talent here that there has to be something that's good and marketable for the masses. I mean, it's really how a band like Black Pumas goes unnoticed by almost everybody. And wow, are they kicking themselves now for not really jumping on the bandwagon like right away? Right, right. And, and like, hopefully that kind of like pushes uh, record labels in that direction, right? Like now that Black Pumas has had back-to-back years with Grammy nominations and they're really getting a lot of attention that uh, some of those bigger labels will realize like, oh, this kind of is a, an untapped resource in terms of finding up-and-coming bands to sign or even like well-established acts that have just kind of been, uh, you know, they have an audience here in Texas or regionally, but they haven't really like taken that nationally. Yeah, I mean, I look at a band like Sweet Spirit or A Giant Dog who are established. They're on Merge Records. They really have a good support base, but I always sometimes wonder, like, what would that look like if they got on a major label that really had their back? Maybe, like, Columbia Records or something like that, that, like, you know, they have the War on Drugs, and I think they may have... um, um, arcade fire uh yep. in america so it's like what if they had a label like that that really pushed them because especially yep. when i look at sweet spirit i see them as almost i don't know they're kind of like the e street band in a way is except that it's fronted by the female bruce springsteen not bruce springsteen and i don't know you would think that like when you have a hall of fame musician like bruce springsteen and i'm telling you that there's the female second coming of that that somebody would take a lot more notice than, you know, what's happened already. Yeah, I I, I mean, it, it just shows you the limitations or, or how far uh, even like a, a big independent label like Merge Records can, can take an act. Like you really do uh, need that bigger push and that stronger marketing push from uh, a major label to, to take an act national. I mean, and, and like Free Spirit is a great example. You know, they have the support of, arguably the most successful rock act in, in Austin in the last 20 years spoon. And it, it's right. still a struggle to uh, really gain that national foothold. I, I think they've done well on a regional level, but uh, to take it to the next level, uh, you really do have to have that huge distribution and uh, that marketing budget and, you know, budget to really like push, push that out to everyone. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. It really does take, um, 
quite a bit of money to sort of make a star artist and to sort of sustain that. Um, but, you know, luckily with internet technology and things like that, there's a way to sort of shortcut those systems, so to speak. But, you know, in terms of like people looking at Austin artists for that that bigger star power, there's so much untapped resources here. And, you know, for me, just talking with you over the years that I especially think hip hop and R&B um, in this city and like soul music are really um, just running with talent that really hasn't been giving enough shine overall. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, and KDTX doing things like uh, um, putting their hip hop show on during the day instead of the weekend. I and, love uh, that show. I love that show um, so much. you know, people like Abby the Nomad getting some attention, I think, is going to make people realize that Austin also has this hip hop and, and soul scene that's uh, really kind of been running underground. Um, but uh, I, I feel like even myself, I've just scratched the surface of, of what there is to, to find here uh, in those scenes. So like, I'm kind of just as guilty as everyone else as uh, maybe not uncovering all of those stones yet. Oh, I mean, I, th- I think everybody has some sort of uh, complicitness in that. Uh, I mean, I, I, as a concert promoter, I really wasn't working within the R&B and hip hop scenes until I had an avenue uh, like Pecan Street Festival to work with them. I was really working within, you know, similar bands to what I was playing in, essentially. That that was my entry point into the industry was, you know, I played in rock bands and I kind of put on rock and roll shows. And then eventually right. I started doing hip-hop shows and EDM shows and everything got a lot more diverse as I got a lot better at doing concerts. But I still look back and think I should have been on top of that from the beginning because I knew it was missing from the scene from the beginning because I came from Houston and Houston had a healthy hip hop scene. It was really weird that it wasn't alongside all the other music that was happening in the city in Austin, the way it was in Houston. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of been this, uh, uh, weird, dichotomy to watch is that in texas austin is the place that people identify as a live music mecca but then running parallel to that is this massive hip-hop scene out of houston um that that's really uh gained prominence in the last like 10 or 15 years and to not see austin pick up on that and kind of run with the fact that we had all this uh, really great hip-hop coming out of a, a nearby city really the um I mean, I guess San Antonio is a little closer, but it's like uh, pretty close to us. It's only like uh, two and a half, three hours away. And to not see that crossover and see those kinds of acts come here on the regular was a little weird to me in retrospect. I mean, yeah. I mean, like Screw Music has origins in Bastrop. So um, I believe that's where DJ Screw is actually from originally before he was out in um, Houston. So there's aspects of it being part of central texas musical fabric so yeah that's crazy i didn't even know that yeah uh, he has like a like a nephew or something like that uh that put out a music recently that's like talking about screw music and you know bastrop and all that scene out there it's really cool they play it every now and then on ktx i I wish i could remember it uh off the top right but yeah there's there's just a big history here so it was yeah it was always kind of missing from the beginning um but yeah now that i'm glad that there's at least conversations about equity uh in the music scene for you know african-american artists and i feel like uh you know chaka would 
Writers Against the Storm has really, like, he started his fund uh, to help black artists. And I really feel like there's a lot of things that have happened sort of in the last couple of years that are sort of at least catching us, hopefully, a lot closer to speed where we should be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Shocker with Writers Against the Storm has done a lot of great stuff. And I think he was made uh, um, uh, the head of the music commission. They appointed him as the head yeah, of the music, yeah. music commission. And as far as I know, he's a first black person to sit in that seat so that's rather significant too and hopefully that moves the the needle uh a little further towards equity and uh seeing more black acts uh performing in like a wider swath of venues whenever we get to reopening all the venues speaking of that uh so we've had a lot of venues close in austin uh, really since the pandemic started, I mean, we've lost uh, Barracuda, we lost Plush, Sidewinder. Um, I feel like I'm definitely forgetting some, uh, definitely some coffee houses that had uh, live shows. And really, there's been sort Spider of... Spider House like, cut out live music, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. Gosh, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Damn. Uh, so... For in Austin, you know, we call ourselves the live music capital of the world. We definitely market that to everybody. Music is on the forefront of visiting Austin and the Austin experience. And yet, when the city was giving money money from the government, you know, through the CARES Act, they really kept um, moving the deadline for help, sort of like the football being moved away from you know, Charlie Brown or whatever. It's, you know, we kept moving the deadline for venues to get help. And just last week, like a few days after I posted my last episode of my podcast, I, uh, the city finally released funds. And I've, me and you have been retweeting it all over online. But yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about it, uh, at least from what you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, what I know is, is that venue operators came to the city and stakeholders came to the city like uh Cody from Red River Cultural District and uh, Rebecca Reynolds is working alongside him, alongside Cody on that initiative, and asked the city to look into getting funds to venue operators because uh, the study had come out that said by the end of October, 90% of venues were going to go out of business. And so, yeah, you're right. They sort of got like told that, oh, just hang on, like some money is coming. Um, and then nothing. So then they have to organize a rally. Everybody goes down to City Hall. And it feels a little absurd, but here we are at a rally in front of City Hall screaming that the City Council needs to put some money towards these venues to tie them over until they can reopen. And then they say, yes, we're going to do that. And we're going to do that in 30 to 45 days. And then they don't. And we go have another rally where, I mean, to me, it's absurd. Like making someone like uh, Kevin Russell from Shiny Rib dry, you know, dressed up in a purple Santa suit and scream about shaming the city council onto Santa's naughty list because they won't do what's right for venue operators here so that when we reopen, all these great artists have a place to go play. Um, and, and I and feel like what's happened is, although it's good that they finally found some money and they're, they're going to distribute it, uh, I guess, like the first bucket by the end of this month and then the second bucket by the end of uh, January. But it feels like a, too little too late, you know. And while that's happening, we find out our largest independent concert promoter is shutting their doors. 
Right. And so I was definitely going to mention that. None too, of though. this feels really good to me. Yeah, it doesn't bode well that when the largest independent concert promoter, you know, and, and stress on independent margin Walker announces that they're closing their doors. And I, I definitely know people in Austin can feel that because their presence is, you know, this is their headquarters. It's heavily felt here. But for those who don't know, they also were booking shows in San Antonio. They're booking yep. shows in Dallas. They had a Dallas office, in fact. And, you know, they would sometimes play shows in Houston, basically handling the entire major city market for, you know, bands that come into. So, when they decide, they look into the future and forecast and say, even with help, even with loans, even with our connections and our contacts and our ability to basically start booking shows the first day we can start doing shows, it's not going to happen. That just really doesn't bode well for the entire music industry, uh, concert industry, and it doesn't bode well for Austin. So no. they they weren't given help, even though there's money out there. And the thing we're not talking about with Margin Walker is that they don't nearly have, in my estimation, uh, the overhead that a lot of venues have. Uh, they definitely had salaries and, and things like that, but you know they were able to trim office space and work remote a lot quicker where venues have been sitting, you know, when that first check comes to them, what, next January, they'll have been closed 10 months, 10 and a half months. Yep. And, you know... I can tell you just from renting Holy Mountain, rent plus triple net was sort of like in the 11,000 range. So that's a tiny venue. It's pretty easy to imagine that other venues are paying $20,000 a month in rent, 10 months not playing or, you know, not being open. So 10 months yep. just on rent alone, $200,000. Oh, yeah. I, I have a friend that owns two venues in town, and fortunately, one of them has a big backyard, and they were able to reopen a lot earlier than other people. And he's happy as horseshit that he's back open and working, and he's in the hole for way more than 250000 bucks. And that just feels, right? Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. Like, I'm happy I'm back to work, and I'm in the hole so much money, it makes me shudder. Oh, man. And and people don't really understand that there's a lot of times with putting on live shows that it's a labor of love. When you have a really big artist that's going to pack out the place, you know, yep. they're going to get paid per their demand. So a yep. lot of times they're going to take the entire ticket price and maybe even part of the bar. So, you know, you're really operating on slim margins and hopefully delivering an experience that people want to return to your venue again. And, you know, when you're starting, you know, right out the gate with a quarter million five hundred thousand dollars in debt just to you know just to be able to exist uh that's that's a pretty hard um hole to climb out of if you could yeah i mean that. yeah honestly if, if he doesn't have a landlord that is working with him and understands that that debt is going to be paid back over time like he's not even looking at continuing like that's not a sustainable scenario he, right. he's very fortunate and that he has someone that's willing to work with him and understands what's going on and has like a little bit of, of a heart about it um and i i don't think that the majority of the independent venue operators in the city like really have that luxury of looking at a rent situation that is that flexible and and i don't think that most people here understand that 95% of the independent venue operators, those are the small, small cap venue operators, like a thousand uh, uh, people or less, uh, yeah. are not getting rich. No one's getting rich. They're, they're lucky if they're making like a halfway decent living. 
Right. Yeah, and, and the, the thing is that if the city is not going to provide help, then what you're basically saying and, and what we both know is that it doesn't make smart business to do. So if we want to really kind of control ourselves as like the live music capital of the world and really provide that infrastructure that's really needed to put off a festival like South by Southwest when we can start doing things in person, we really need yeah. to have all those things in place uh, for something like that to exist. Yeah, uh, totally. And you know, the city withholding help to me is actually very disgraceful. Um, I understand there's definitely aspects of the city that are super working hard and trying hard and trying to make things happen fast. And then there's seemingly the people who can make things move faster, like city council, just twiddling their thumbs until they're reminded that we are one of the largest industries when we're mm-hmm. all combining our efforts together, that you really need to start catering to us the same way that you guys will call a special session so that a Tesla factory can get approved. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And and there's it, it's amazing to me at, at this point in the game that we still have this disconnect with city officials where they they say the right things but seem not to understand there's there's a disconnect there about the significance of the live music industry and they seem not to understand uh what that actual dollar value brings to the city. And I know that you and I have repeated it a bunch of times, but it's worth repeating again that for every dollar spent at one of those independent live music venues, $12 is spent at surrounding businesses. Right, and, you got the hotel, and, and, you and got the That's where I have trouble understanding that the city doesn't have the kind of buy-in that we need because we're speaking to the bottom line. That's tax revenue dollars, like in the door to the city that you're leaving on the table if you don't protect independent venues and you don't protect the entertainment community here that attracts visitors and tourists and people to the downtown entertainment district. Yeah, I I can't agree more. It's just like live music really is sort of like the blood in the veins of the city. And if you're going to allow that you know, that sort of aspect of culture to sort of die off and, and not exist here, then you're really just setting up the city, you know, to not look like how we're basically presenting it to everybody in the outside world. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree. It's like if 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 the thing that you like about Austin is what is different from other cities and you don't protect that, then you just become like every other major metro. And then there's nothing special about it. That depresses me so much, honestly. Like, there's so much special about this city that it, it, and that's such a big part of it. And again, like you said, until people really come here, they don't really understand how ubiquitous live music is in this mm-hmm. city. I mean, it's just everywhere. And when South by Southwest was happening, this city's live music experience was on steroids. It was almost 10x what it is any other time of the year. So, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, maybe more than 10x. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> Like yeah. all you do is your music for two weeks. Yeah, it's, you're inundated, and then like when you finally get home away from the chaos, it's like you almost can feel like live music like reverberating off your body. It's just like yeah, oh yeah, so you much. totally have that kind of echo. Uh, it's it's just been rattling around in your head for days and days and days, and uh, yeah, I think we've all experienced that if we've gone to South by Southwest uh, here in Austin. Is uh, there's there's this uh, residual effect of just being inundated like you said with with all that live music over a short period of time 
just being besides the live music aspect uh what i love about south by southwest in general uh besides just how much it is everywhere but it's just that you're surrounded by people who are um going after a dream of some sort some they're going after a goal of some sort so everybody is really fun to be around but also like motivated to do things so uh it's a really just this nice mixture of like energy partying networking doing business not doing business eating good food uh taking long walks uh i don't know it's it's everything i sort of live for it's it was really depressing to not be able to experience that this year yeah i, I mean i i have my fears that south by will ever come back in the same capacity it existed before um i i hope it does i have this feeling that like if it's able to come back in person in 2022 that it's really gonna like kick off because people are going to sort of be dying to do uh experiential like in-person things but you know i could be wrong but i don't know i i hope that there's at least from the tech side of things big support to sort of you know get that festival up and going because it really is a festival of culture it's music film tech uh it's military government like it's you know interesting ideas being exchanged it's uh you know it's just the biggest festival of its kind in North America and you know for the nightlife to happen it really has to have all the stages that allow that you know to go down in this city yeah it'll be interesting to see how their online component goes this year and 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 what they do uh you know kind of in this what hopefully I we're viewing as like a stopgap year before we go back to uh, a, a live and in-person event right yeah, and even if it's just, you know, half of what we knew, uh, you know, that will be a good sign, at least that we're kind of going to sort of trend back to what we knew. Because um, otherwise, the thing that downtown live music clubs needed to figure out next is that if South by Southwest is not coming back, a lot of the leases are based upon a South by Southwest, you know, cash yeah. junction that comes in March. That's going to need to have a re, that's going to need to fix itself in, in the marketplace. And we're going to yeah. hopefully see rents go down to something that makes sense if that's not going to exist. Or, well, you're, you're actually bringing up a good point. And, and one, and this is something that has actually bothered me for a long time. And I know as uh, an owner, uh, a previous owner of an independent music venue, you probably feel similarly, but South by Southwest not happening last year and not happening this year should force venues to reconsider their previous model, which it, it, people may not know this, but and if you don't, here it is, is most venues, most independent venues in town here make their nut in the first quarter of the year when South by is, and then they just hang on the rest of the year. That's a good description. I mean, there's losses yeah, in the summer and, and there's and losses honestly, in winter. Honestly, that's not really any way to do business. Right. So my hope is is that South by not existing for the last two years, you know, in its traditional capacity and those venues not getting that income in that they normally would from these huge brand activations and whatnot will force them to rethink their, their model in a way that's much more sustainable over the course of the entire year, whatever that looks like. If that means that you're introducing like a food component into your venue or you're utilizing the space like differently during the day because you don't have shows during the day or like what what is it that you're doing with that venue to really like max out that space so that you're really making the kind of money that you need to make across all four quarters of the year to have a sustainable business. 
Yeah, I mean, you've got to build sort of a community that wants to hang out there like it's a national <coughs> bar, but doesn't mind paying cover for shows. I mean, yep. it's still crazy to be like, you know, 20 years ago, I was putting on a show in high school and people would argue about a $5 cover at the door. And then I'd be putting on a show as a 35 year old in Austin and people would be complaining about a $5 cover. Yeah, um, it's you know, absurd. Like, get we shouldn't it. even be having those conversations. <laughs> Honestly, right, like, right. <laughs> what, why are you complaining about $5 when you're going to step into the bar and pay 7 for the cocktail? Like, come on. That That's what always bothered me, too. And there's four bands playing tonight, man. Like, you got right. a buck 25. Yeah, a buck 25 a band is pretty fucking cheap. If we were in L.A., they'd make you valet park and pay $25 a head. Oh, yeah, man. I went to a, a dive bar in Seattle, and it was like 14 bucks at the door just for like a regular Wednesday show. Yeah. And like yeah. people were happily paying. And it wasn't like anybody. That was huge. It was just like a regular local show. Yeah. I, I, I you know, I, I feel like I've been singing this tune the whole time. And, you know, and that's part of that whole initiative about me writing a lot about local acts is simply like these are national level talent playing for free or five dollars like on the regular right right these are your neighbors who are super talented and like if you go to try to see these acts play when they go on tour to la or seattle it's not going to be five dollars and that drink is not going to be cheap either so yeah. go okay. out there and go see these bands because you're you're really getting this low bar to entry to see this amazing talent that you'd pay four five six times more to see in another major metro absolutely uh oh man i, I miss live music so much uh, i know you do you as much as i went out and see it you you probably went uh, you went out every single day of the week so uh, i'm, I'm I mean, it, it might have seemed like every single day but yeah i mean this is uh, this has been <laughs> extremely rough on me personally and yeah. uh i took the opportunity because i'm not seeing two or three or four shows a week to delve into uh you know working with sims foundation which is a, a local nonprofit that provides uh mental health and addiction services to the music industry and oh, uh really delve into building out some of the other aspects of the cosmic class website so during the pandemic we put up a uh a video section of our site, which is uh, exclusively local music videos. And awesome. I think there's over 250 of them. And we also put up uh, a Cosmic Class record store, which is just a list of 50 different artists. And we're going to expand, expand that that are all local independent artists. And, the, you know, it just links directly to where you can buy their music, uh, you know, directly from the artists, whether it's their band camp page or their, or their website. And the idea is just to provide more outlet to get uh the local artist exposure and hopefully like to sell a few records too or merchandise or whatever um yeah. but which is definitely kind the best of way focusing to help on those activities in, in order to compensate for the fact that we can't book a bunch of shows or organize a bunch of events like we would normally do so tell me more about uh, i guess the the storefront for local central texas artists uh, what's kind of the goal i guess uh with the cosmic clash uh going forward with that um i mean uh over the past two years i took this from basically mike and i mike uh Coda is a site founder and owner of, of the Cosmic Class, uh, providing all the content to 
kind of recruiting some other uh, contributors. So my goal in this next year is to increase the number of contributors and increase the breadth of our coverage. Like specifically, you, you brought it up earlier, but specifically I want more coverage of soul and hip hop in Austin. And uh, anybody listening out there, if, if you're young and you're really into hip hop and soul and you're dying to write about it, reach out to the cosmic clash. We're looking for you. You're <laughs> um, yeah, here first y'all. I mean, reach out to Greg at the cosmic clash. He is looking for writers who are interested in writing about the Austin hip hop and R and B scenes and soul scenes. Yep. And, uh, I've, I've also been, there's this weird thing that happens in, uh, you know, music blogs and, music journalism where the bulk of the people that write this stuff are like older white guys like me. Uh, so I've kind of been focusing <laughs> on trying to find like a female contributor too that want to contribute regularly just so we have like a, a different voice. And you know, that, that's the For idea sure. with the, uh, my dream hip hop writer and R and B writer would be someone that is younger um, and maybe right. has a different point of view than, you know, the old middle-aged white guy that grew up on classic rock. <laughs> <laughs> which is me <laughs> oh man I, I grew up on classic rock too so yeah <laughs> uh, so speaking of classic rock uh, this is kind of a good tra transition here uh, classic artists big trend in music industry and recorded music industry is classic artists who own their catalogs have been selling them to record labels or uh, just investor groups um, we recently saw bob dylan sold his master catalog for it's at least 300 million uh, but it's been reported close maybe even closer to 400 million uh, for his catalog uh, to universal music group and then we saw that lil wayne sold his catalog uh, and also his Cash Money Records catalog to Universal Music Group for $100 million. And I think the big value in that part of his catalog is the part of uh, the stuff that he owns of Drake's uh, as much as it is his. But yeah. Dolly Parton says she may be next. Uh, David Crosby says he may be next. And he also points out it's because records don't sell anymore because the streaming companies have stolen all their money. Because <laughs> uh, he's a salty fuck, uh, but yeah, this is a trend that we're going to kind of keep seeing. I want—I kind of wonder what your thoughts about it were. I mean, it's been a little crazy to watch, and like, I don't—I think that you do a better job than I do of following like larger music business trends. Um, so a lot of times, I find out uh, about these kind of things through stuff that you or similar people <laughs> post on social media but it's been kind of crazy to watch that the result of all this revenue generated from these streaming services are these huge catalog purchases by uh by these big labels and investor groups yeah. you know i i didn't really uh anticipate that that was the direction that streaming was going to take us and that you'd have someone like bob dylan who arguably had the one of the greatest most covered personal collection of yeah. published songs in the modern era go yeah i'm gonna sell all of this lock stock and barrel right i mean it's kind of crazy it is crazy i kind of wonder too if it's like if they think uh and because this is kind of morose and dark but i did mention that it's easier to split money amongst your hairs than it is to administer a copyright yeah so yeah if you're kind of near you know, the end of your life potentially like uh, and it's sad to say, but it's kind of your estate planning uh, in one regards. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, I, there's I also think... a part of me that's happy that, hey, you 
you built this catalog and you owned it for a long time for the sole purpose of building its value and now the values arrived and you said yes so there's a part of me that feels congratulatory for it but there is a part of me that's also kind of sad about it because you know the point of kind of holding on to that you know artists uh your masters and all that is so you can build it up for value and it's kind of sad that it doesn't transfer out to family or to an estate so easily where you could maybe retain that value yeah uh Dolly Parton brought that up in, in, in that article you sent over uh, about, you know, her and her manager considering selling her catalog. Um, and it, I thought it was really interesting that she said it's not the money that's important to her. What's important to her is that her name is on those songs. Right. And uh, I found that fascinating. You know, at some point, uh, once you make enough money at anything, right, like it's not about the money. It's true. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I found it interesting that she said that, and I found it interesting that she made a point of saying that any deal in which she sells all or part of her, of her catalog, she's going to retain some type of control over that, too. I fucking love that. Like, I, I love reading that, because I was like, that... Even when, like, I saw the headline of the article saying she was considered selling it, I part of me was thought, like... Really? Because there's a part of me that thinks you would want to kind of hold on to it. But, you know, the one thing that you can argue for in her behalf of considering it besides the money is that the people who are best at exploiting intellectual property of recorded music is the people who have been doing this all along. So if they're interested in buying it and owning a portion of it going forward and you still have some controls aspects, well, now you have a partner essentially who's going to maximize the value in a way that you might have never even considered because that's right. their specific specialty, which is exploiting that that recorded well, music master. I mean, that's where we're at, right? Like when Dolly Parton sat down and wrote like the bulk of those 3,000 published songs, there weren't streaming services generating income. Right. Yeah. And like you kind of knew from her character too, in terms of like the money aspect, like her wanting her name on the songs was important to her because, you know, the classic story for those who don't know, and especially for those who are younger out there, is that when Whitney Houston did I Will Always Love You for the Bodyguard soundtrack and it became this huge smash hit, you know, that's Dolly Parton's song and she retained all the rights for that. And what people didn't realize is that years, years, years before that, Elvis Presley recorded a cover of that song and his manager, the Colonel called her up and she was all excited. You know, he's going to record it. And he informed her though, that you do know that all the songs that Elvis covers, he has to take 50% of the publishing. And she basically said like, well, I'm really sorry, but I can't do that. Yep. And like, so you never got to hear that cover song of, you know, his version. That's yep. that. And she really took a risk because she knows that he would have made a hit out of that and it would have brought her a healthy paycheck, but not in the way that it paid off for her years later when Whitney Houston took to the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really, you know, like it tells you how much really someone like Dolly Parton believed in, in her own talent and her own ability, even if, you know, someone like Elvis Presley or his management company is saying, no, you really only deserve like half the revenue from that song. If I sing it, you know, to, to me, I, I, I admire the pressure that that type of approach to your work is, you know, like it's, it's just like anything else you do. If Dolly Parton doesn't believe in her work, well, why should she expect anyone else to? Right. But that's always a secondary and uh, not like a secondary, but like a there's like an almost like a premium like belief in yourself that she has there because there's this aspect of like, well, I may be struggling now and I could definitely use 
what's probably going to be a million dollar paycheck, but it's really more important for me to just actually own my song because I wrote it and you should just cover it and I should have my, my, you know, my ownership as it is. Yeah. At, that's that's pretty hard because it's it's depending on where you are financially it's really hard to sort of say no to stuff like that whether you're wealthy or not so i mean that's that's quite the fortitude to sort of look at that and and you know stare that down the face and make that decision um I want to say about Little Wayne real quick. Uh, it was first reported that he sold his catalog for a hundred million, and there was a part of me that was kind of like, that seems kind of high. Uh, like he has a lot of songs and stuff, but like he has a lot of co-writes and collaborations in the way that ownership is kind of split across. Like songwriting and and hip hop can be pretty fractured sometimes so I, I kind of wondered at what percentage that he owned but it came out later that he also sold the masters that he owned with the record label that he owns which is cash money records and cash money right. records has like Nicki minaj and drake uh and, and several others so it's like huge value there so he sold all those masters and for 100 million but the reason we even found out wasn't because it was announced it's because he is manager that helped uh do the deal and then he got quote unquote fired right before they like finalized it right uh, suing for earnings so uh he's suing for 20 million um out of the hundred million dollar deal that that he did and that's really how all this came to light um my take on that is uh and this really goes for the whole, uh, you know, Chance the Rapper and Pat the Manager dispute is that artists just pay your managers. That's it. This is just work rendered. It's commissions. So it isn't like a big question mark about what someone's earned. Just pay it. It's a lot easier than some sort of headache and lawsuit. If you don't want to work with a person anymore, fine. But just, you know, handle things as you're, you're supposed to to your contract and then keep your business quiet and you can go about your business. But when stuff like this pops up and you start getting sued left and right, I mean, that is a way to just put the brakes on your momentum and you're really not gonna kind of advance in the areas you want in your career because you're spending too much time looking at things backwards. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if you I have mean, any comments on that, but that's just my take. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, uh, that, uh, that's a whole ball of whack that it, at the end of the day, Little Wayne doesn't want, you know? Uh, you're right. Like he already had a, a bad record come out or a poor release. And that's part of the reason why his relationship with his management fractured. But now he's just throwing like, in my opinion, like bad money after good in uh, fighting these lawsuits. And as, as I understand it, he has the potential for uh, to lose this lawsuit to his former manager and pay like huge punitive damages on top of what the manager is trying to recoup that he wasn't already paid. So this like could end up the costing him way more like, money than it ever should have. I was going to say the manager's recoupment part of it looked like it was just like uh, expenses to be reimbursed, which means he was fronting for certain things that you know required to get a record or a tour off the ground, things like that before you know Chance was going to get paid out. And some of that is for people who don't manage artists uh, like I do is that how artists get paid and depending what revenue stream it is, varies greatly in terms of like uh, timing. So yeah. sometimes you just have to front things because the timing of what you're building up to, like a record release or a tour, yeah. requires it at that moment. So there's always going to be some sort of 
give and take. Uh, to aspiring managers out there, what I would say, uh, especially as someone who's been burned by someone uh, in the past, is that uh, you just need to put in your contract limits that you know any sort of outstanding fees, either reimbursement or commissions, can only reach a certain amount before it triggers you know a work stoppage or whatever the fuck. But never right. let your your rider get too high in, in terms of things because Pat the manager I think had like two and a half million or something like that. It's like holy shit so much yeah money yeah that's crazy it should never get up to like that that big a number <laughs> of expenses right like at some point you should have a clause in your contract that says oh look we've gotten up to a hundred thousand dollars of expenses yeah, that time, needs to be to resolved pay. before we move forward yeah it's something like that something to, to protect you uh contracts for sure because uh what with the chance of rapper and pat the manager dispute we we learned in their lawsuit that it was a verbal contract and listen you know i i i'm of the opinion that you know your word is your bond but a lot of people don't operate that way uh so have a contract and you know i think where this guy is going to get lucky is that he's in a state that honors verbal contracts but also um you can kind of prove engagement in a contract based upon people's uh, consistent behaviors. So if mm-hmm. he behaved a certain way and paid you a certain way for years and then sort of stopped at dispute, yeah. well, it's pretty easy to prove that you had a working relationship. Yeah, it, I mean, it appears that way in, in that instance. And uh, I don't know, the way the way that I was, I was looking at that story, I don't think this worked out for Lil Wayne at all. Oh, for Lil Wayne or Chance the Rapper? Uh, a Chance the Rapper that is suing his With, management. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. Chance the Rapper, like that. That it's probably not going to work scenario, out for Lil Wayne. <laughs> it's like I think they said that in the article. This should be an example of a cautionary tale of what not to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do these things. Uh, but you know, it, it's sad because especially uh, you know I don't really know much about Lil Wayne's manager. Uh, you know, but it is kind of like, hey, man, he did some big deals for you and got you out of a bunch of bad deals. Uh, pay the dude. But yeah. when it comes to Chad, Chance the Manager and Pat the Man or Chance the Rapper, sorry, excuse me, Chance the Rapper and Pat the Manager, I think what people really liked about their story is that, you know, Chance wanted to not sign to a major. And it was really him and his manager sort of against the world and changing the scope of. Yeah. You know, changing the scope of SoundCloud and rising above and creating a star. So it, yeah. it was a big part of their story and a lot of people gravitated to it because, you know, maybe you're someone who wants to manage someone's career that is well, you know, not very well known and you get to look at them as an example and think, hell yeah, yeah. man, that's, that's yeah. it. Uh, and it just sort of ruins that sort of, that feel good story that they had, unfortunately. Sure. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And in, in that context, it does sort of ruin it, right? You're like, oh, look, you know, they took on the big guys and they won. Uh oh. They did it. They didn't actually cross their T's and dot their I's and look where they're at now. <sighs> that, it, it sucks so much too. Um, anyways, uh, best of luck to all these people, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, especially now, like. Lucky you have a music career at all at this point. Yeah, no shit. I mean, uh, yeah. To that, uh, speaking of music stoppages, we'll we'll stop on this last topic here. But like, uh, Paul Star, who is the music industry's, um, yeah, basically the keeps track of the concert industry in terms of ticket sales, and they tracked the industry losses this year, and it was thirty billion dollars lost in live concert industry. Yeah, this year it's insane. It's a bloodbath, like. And it didn't have to be this way. That's that's the real sh- the shit part about it is that 
we could have did what New Zealand did and we could have did with like, uh, you know, South Korea did. We could have really did like contact tracing and we could have shut down things and we would probably be having concerts again right now, but we did none of that shit. And now we have 3000 COVID deaths a day. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's super unfortunate. I mean, thankfully, thankfully our election turned out the way that it did. And I think that, uh, I mean, at least for me, and I feel like a lot of other Americans feel like that, like that there is some like hope on the horizon and that we're going to write the ship and start doing all of the things that we could have been doing back in March and April to mitigate the impact of the pandemic and Plus get us back to something healthier here, you know, literally healthier and then, you know, get the economy back to a spot where we can move forward. Man, I, I can't wait. I'm I'm ready to go to a great show. I can't wait. Whether it's my education or going to see Mets or just uh, you know something like that, just to just get me fucking pumped up. Because uh, I don't know, man. Man, yeah, that would be without. great. You know, uh, we we reviewed that Mets record really early on and got to do an interview with Alex. And uh, I think I even talked about that at the end of the interview. It's like I absolutely because they're such a high energy band and it, you just. You just, you never leave a Met show feeling like you didn't get what you came for. And uh, I think that's the perfect kind of show to start back with. I would love to see them come down to Austin and maybe kick their tour off here. And he talked about the fact that uh, some of the best live music memories he had playing the show he played at uh, Mohawk. Yeah, and the uh, interview he did was, uh, yeah, he talked about the Mohawk show opening for uh, Sherubs. Yeah, I mean, I can practically like taste that like bring it to me yeah like yeah it was that barracuda i mean you uh stood side stage and it was just like they just yeah. wrecked shop for like a whole fucking hour and it's just like pure energy and honestly when i start thinking about live music i'll i'll think about that show and a few other shows to sort of like get me going uh for that need and uh, because I don't know, man. There's there's really something social uh, that I miss about that. It's it's more than just the bands and the music. It's the community. It's like it's meeting people like you and in April and and you know just hanging out. You know maybe sharing a joint or something like that and and seeing all the talent that's really just laying at our feet at the city. Anyway, yeah. Um, I mean, what what really excites me is and particularly in Austin where we have like a high music IQ for your average music fan is going out to a show like that Met show or even a, you know, a local band like my education and just looking around and seeing everybody just super pumped about seeing that show. Like they're, they're just as happy as I am about what I'm doing right then. And I miss that. I miss sharing that experience with, uh, other music fans. Amen. Well, that's all I got for you, Greg. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and being the first guest uh, to interview on Sound and Strain. Uh, everybody, please check out Greg Ackerman's work on The Cosmic Clash. Uh, he also can be found, uh, and I'll put this in the notes on the episode, at G underscore A-C-K on Twitter. Give him a follow, and uh, you can see his music takes and you know get to know him. Tell him you heard him uh, first on this podcast and say hello. Uh, thanks again, Greg, for coming on, and I appreciate your time. Thanks, Ryan. I really uh, appreciate you asking me to be on the podcast, and uh, let's do this again sometime. I'd love, I'd love to come back. Yeah, this was fun. Let's do this again. Uh, say uh, happy holidays to uh, Haley and to the puppies. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> All right. Thanks, buddy. 
That song you just heard was the holiday classic Krampus from post-rock instrumentalist My Education off their album Skip Hole, which you can purchase directly from the band on their Bandcamp page. That multicolored vinyl is so damn beautiful that you're definitely going to want to add that to your collection. Yeah. <laughs> Always interrupted by cats in the show. So that multicolor vinyl is, is, like I was saying, it's it's really damn beautiful and you just want to add that to your collection. What would y'all think about that interview with Greg? Greg is such an awesome dude. He really covers Austin, Texas music scene from with a you know a perspective that others don't and with an abandon that others rarely possess. He really has a great you know point of view on the macro and micro aspects of of our music scene. And I think Greg being a bit of an entrepreneur in his past sort of means that he just has a good business mind for what makes sense with our within our industry. So you're able to have these really deep and meaningful conversations. And what I love about him is how much he just gives a shit about Austin like he truly cares about Austin he cares about Austin musicians and he really just wants to see them excel and you know amen to that I mean I I, I agree with that 100% so please go follow him on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever you prefer to use uh, he is G underscore A-C-K uh, it will be in the description of this show so it's easy for you to find it was definitely an honor to have my good friend on this show to chat and we'll definitely have him back on this thing uh, as I mentioned last week on the show that I wanted to uh, get the Bronco 2 that Ford is releasing next year. And almost as soon as I mentioned that, of course, Ford announced that the Bronco 2's production is being delayed. There's, you know, uh, supply chain delays because of COVID-19. And, you know, I read that sales won't now be finalized until mid-January to March of next year. And, you know, delays further upon delivery of the actual Bronco that you would order. So... I'm going to go ahead and assume I will not be getting the Bronco 2 now. I'm looking at possibly a Ford Explorer, or maybe another Ford F-150. I ended up building online a custom Jeep Grand Cherokee 80th anniversary edition that I think finaled out at around 42000 approximately. Uh, I didn't see what financing they had though uh, because I didn't want to give them my info just yet, but that car that I built, man, that shit looks so fucking good. It's like 4x4 with off-road capabilities, but in a luxury SUV uh, that I made black on black on black, just like fucking murdered out. Uh, It was smooth and definitely like a level of car that I've never owned before. I've never owned like something with that kind of luxury, so I don't know. I still like not having a car payment, but you know, we'll, we'll end up seeing what I decide here soon. That is it for this week. Taking us out of this episode is Austin by way of Temple, Texas hip hop artist, Pat G known for his intricate wordplay and conscious rhymes. Real rap is the opening track to his 2019 album, whatever it takes. Pat G is one of my favorite hip hop artists in Texas. And here's hoping we get a new EP or LP from him in 2021. Uh, you can find Pat G's music on Spotify or SoundCloud or Bandcamp. Uh, when live music kickstarts again, he is a really good performer, whether he is performing with just a DJ or a full band behind him. Also, this will be the last episode before the holiday. Whether you celebrate Christmas or another holiday tradition, I just want to let you know. Let me send you my biggest well wishes for you, your family, and your friends. And you know, the only thing I can really say is happy holidays and to take it easy on yourself. Uh, Be safe, stay distance, continue to wear your mask and wash your hands. Let's get through this holiday COVID-19 free before we can all hopefully get vaccinated. 
Have an awesome holiday break. I'll be back for an episode before the new year, so see you soon. Now playing is Real Rap from Pat G. This is Ryan Cano. Thank you for tuning in. Peace. Now introducing Temple's very own Pat G. Thank you, ladies. You're far too kind. Let's get it. Yeah. This one right here is for Texas. The Lone Star. Temple, what's up? Show. Wildcat alumni. I grew up on the north side. I see the game like I'm courtside. Coach, too, of course. I got the bird's eye view. Like I'm in the press box. I'm red hot. I take spots. Dak Prescott. My composure, I never lose it. Texas Roots, known to rock it like I played for Houston. Not the Astros, I could change up. Curveball, throwing fastballs, call it my sales pitch. When I'm up the bat, I swing for the fence. Slow it down, Patrick, young Maverick. You got star power like the Cowboys in Dallas. They hear me rhyme and they say I'm amazing. My response, I just shining like that God gave me. And I know every verse I write be taking the longest. But this was all done on the spur of the moment. Texas, uh, uh, yeah. Now throw your hands up. Uh, as we, yeah. I'ma give you what they want. This is real rap. Uh, uh, yo, yeah. Now throw your hands up. Yeah, as we, uh. I'ma give them what they want, this is real rap, real rap They wish me good luck, ain't no luck involved nah. I've been working hard, yeah. now it's paying off Smart work pays for show, I'm new to getting paid for shows Sure it'll never get old, never Always been a go-getter Only time I wanna change is if I change for the better Make a name for myself, y'all can stay the same I won't complain, left my prints on the game like Purple Rain Ooh. And I'm just getting started I'ma grind till my kids' kids are good Then kick back like a house party yeah. Another day at the office, handle all my business uh. Now I get to the paper, like it's Dunlap Mifflin Pulling out all the stops, yeah. like a crossing guard Many a car, but few are chosen Sometimes you're on your own when you're shooting around You gotta do it by yourself, get your own rebound Yeah, uh, uh, yeah Now throw your hands up uh. As we, yeah I'ma give you what they want, this is real rap Uh, uh, yo, yeah Now throw your hands up, yeah As we, uh, I'ma give them what they want This is real rap, real rap So elusive when it comes to the fake Shoot me straight, no illusion when I illustrate The illest traits in my DNA Cook the cake, eat it too Driven, eyes on the road, hands at 10 and 2 Business attended to Big boss moves, King Cooper More drive than Lyft or Uber A mini coupe, Mustang or McLaren So if you're riding with the kid, you should go ahead and share it Uh, uh, chill, uh Drive slow, homie I'ma give them what they want, this is real rap Uh, uh, now throw your hands up As we, yeah I'ma give them what they want, this is real rap Yeah, I go by name of Pat G You're not too mean to whatever it takes Ride with me, ride with me, yeah Uh, off your temple, Texas Third coast, stand up Lone Star, uh, this is real rap. Hey, kitty.